over in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, you could also use the YouVersion Bible app, if you have it, to uh, follow along as well. And uh, as you're turning there, I just kind of want to recap. Uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Numbers over the last several weeks, and last week, you know, the, the last couple of weeks have been kind of difficult in the story of the book of Numbers because, you know, one week we see, you know, this decision by God to tell the Israelites, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, and so you are not going to make it into the promised land. Their unbelief, their constant unbelief got the better of them. And then last week, we see people rebelling. We want water. It's better to be in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron, they start out by doing the right thing. They go to the Lord in prayer, and, and God tells them, okay, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be this rock. You're going to tell this rock to produce water up out of it, and you're going to be able to give this water to the people. They'll give it to their livestock. All you have to do is tell it to bring forth water, and I will do the rest. And that's what he's told to do. But then we see Moses and his anger and his frustration. It gets the better of him. And at first, he kind of takes the glory for what's about to happen on himself, you know, do we have to do this for you? But then we see his anger and his frustration gets the better of him when he smacks the rock twice, bringing out water. And because he did not listen, because he did not believe, because he takes away from the holiness of God in this moment, God tells him, you're not going to go into the promised land. You know, we talked about it. There's consequences for our sins, and we, we have to be careful to not let anger and frustration in the moment get the better of us and keep us from being faithful and obedient. And so we fast forward this week a little bit to Numbers 21. And we see after Moses striking the rock, we see them trying to uh, go through Edom, the land of Eden, to uh, continue on in their journey, but the king of Edom tells them no, and so they're, they're going to have to backtrack, and then we see the death of Aaron, Aaron who wasn't going to make it into the promised land anyway, we see him pass away, and that brings us to where we are this morning in Numbers 21, and I don't know about you, but as I was reading through this text this week, it made me think about something. It made me think about when I was a kid. And I can say when I was a kid all the way up to being a teenager, and you're probably in the same boat as me if you're to be completely honest, when you look back at your childhood and at your teenage years, do you ever just feel, man, I really took things for granted? Like I really took things for granted. We, when you're a kid, when you're, in a or when you're a teenager, you don't, you don't think about things sometimes. And we say stupid things like, oh, when I become an adult, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go spend all my money on this, and nobody's going to be able to tell me no, and I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And then now, as adults, we think, man, I really took for granted. I really took things for granted. I think now back to when I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do whatever I want, and then I realized, oh, wait a minute, you've got to have money to do those things. And even the basic necessities, it requires money. And I think back to when I was a kid, and I think about how 
you know, my parents provided for me and my brother. We, we always had what we needed. We had clothes to wear, food to eat, a roof over our house. Sometimes we got those things that we were like, oh, can we really want this. Sometimes it was, hey, you know, there's other more important priorities. You're probably like me growing up, and you go into the store, and you see something you want, and you're like, oh, I really want this. And they say, well, do you have allowance, and you have your allowance saved up? Uh, not enough. Well, then come back when you, we'll come back when you have your allowance. But, but no, no, I, I want this now. And it's like, sorry, save your money. And I would throw a fit and I would argue, and I would complain, and I would say dumb things like, oh, you don't really care about me, because if you really cared about me, then you would get me this thing, and you wouldn't worry about my allowance. You would just take for granted sometimes the provision that we had when we were growing up. And I think about that, and now I realize, man, I'm so thankful I'm so thankful for the things that I had. I was so thankful for the clothes that I had, for the food that I had, the bed that I had, the roof that I had over my head. I was thankful for parents that took me to all the sporting events that I was involved in. I was thankful for looking back all the, the money it cost for gas, the, the things I would need, the physicals, all that stuff that you would need. It cost money, and I'm thankful for that now. Well, we come to our text this morning and we read about a group of people who sometimes just take for granted what God has done for them. They take for granted what God has done for them, all the things that God has done for them. And we, we read a story of you know, people in their unbelief forgetting about what God has done for them. And we see judgment, we see consequence, but we see a God who provides God is a God of provision, and he provides for his people time and time again, and he provides for us time and time again, and he provides something so important that we couldn't live without. And our text talks about all of this this morning. And so we're going to start in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 21. And this is what it says. It says, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Etherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. And so we start our text this morning with the, the king of Arad coming and attacking the Israelites and taking some of them captive. Now, Arid was a Canaanite city. It was about 20 miles east, northeast of Beersheba. And we see that the king hears about the people traveling down by the, way, or by the road of Etherim, which is a site unknown. And so he attacks the Israelites, and he takes some of them captive. Now, it doesn't say why he does this. It just tells us that he does this. It's likely that the king saw them moving from Kadesh to Mount Hor as a, a threat, and so he's going to jump on them and, and take some of the people. You see, kidnapping here is what happens, taking hostages. This was seen as a capital offense in the eyes of the Israelites. Makes sense, right? You shouldn't kidnap people. This is actually found in Exodus 21.16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then the thief shall die. 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so we see this event take place, and then we see something different from the nation of Israel. Look what they do here. They, they make a vow to the Lord, and, and they say, if you will just give, this, give us the enemies over to us, give the enemies over to us, we will devote their cities to destruction. And it's likely Moses speaking on behalf of the people, but they make this vow. And you see the word here, destruction, and in other translations, it uses the word destroy. It's a word that means they would devote them to the, they would devote the cities, the, their enemies, as an offering or a tribute. So the city's ruin will be a tribute to God and to his provision. And God hears this vow. And he gives the Canaanites over to them. And the Israelites devoted the Canaanites and their cities to destruction. And this place is called Hormah. And you might be wondering, that name sounds familiar. Where did we last read that? That was over in Numbers 14. You see, these same people, along with the Amalekites, did the same thing around 38 years prior to this. In Numbers 14, 45, And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. And what's great is this name, Horma, was once a place of defeat, is now a place of victory. God can do that, can he? God can take a place of defeat and turn it into a place of victory. He can take a moment of defeat and turn it into a moment of victory. And they made this vow, and God has provided, but, but. And it always feels like with the nation of Israel, there is always a but, something that comes next. And in verses 4 and 5, it says this. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You see, the people are having to go around down by the Red Sea because they couldn't get access through the land of Edom. And we already know what happens next. The Israelites do what they always do. As soon as things get hard, they begin to grumble, they complain, they get upset. I was reading this week a note that says it's about 15 times or more in Exodus and Numbers that they grumble and complain. We see this a lot. Every single time they get impatient, they complain. They made a vow to the Lord, and he provided, and they quickly forget it. We just read it, and they already quickly forget what God has promised them. They already forget, and over and over, God provides for them. He brought them out of Egypt. He gives them food. He gives them water. He gives them protection. He gives them victory. He is going to bring them into the promised land. And over and over again, they are so quick to forget. But you want to know what I've noticed? We're no different. We're no different. In fact, I think there's a lesson here for us, and that's this. We are quick to forget God's provision. We are very quick to forget God's provision. If you think about it, when we see God's provision in our lives, you know, we're glad. 
And we rejoice in him. Thank you, God. And, and I, I can feel your provision here. I can feel that you have helped me in this moment, in this situation. God, you are so good. You are so great. But as soon as times get hard or we have to wait on his timing, we quickly forget about what it is he has done and we get angry and annoyed. We do that. Stephen Cole sums it up this way. He says, but before we condemn Israel, we need to admit that we've done the same thing. We get impatient with trials that God brings to refine us and shape us into the image of Christ. We get tired of waiting on God to fulfill his promises. We complain about our circumstances, even though God has abundantly provided for our needs. We exaggerate our trials and minimize our blessings, just as Israel did. But we never have valid reasons to accuse the Lord of cruelty or complain about his treatment of us. And I think this is where we find ourselves so often. When our prayers aren't answered the way we want them to be, God didn't provide. When life hasn't gone according to our plan, God hasn't provided. When we get that bad news, God hadn't provided. We so quickly forget the ways that God provides. He provides for us each and every day. For those who seek him earnestly, who desire relationship with him, he provides for us each and every day. He provides his word. He provides us mercy. He provides us grace. He provides our basic needs, the things we need to get by each and every day. He provides for us. Psalm 3410 says it like this, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And really, Jesus says it best. In Luke 12, 22 through 31, it says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And God provides. We just need to remember that each and every day. God provides, and I get it. I really do. And I struggle with anxiety. And this week has, has been hard. I've been struggling with this anxiousness, and I've been spending a lot of time reading God's word, just thinking about all these scriptures where he talks about, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. God provides, God is with you. And it's so easy sometimes when we're in the middle of an anxious situation or we feel anxious or we, we've got all these things happening around us, we forget what God has done. But whatever our situation, we need to remember that God provides for those who seek him, who follow him. We have to remember God's provision. But here they are, yet again, complaining. And then in verse 6, it tells us this, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. 
Well, this escalates pretty quickly. They're complaining, they're grumbling, and then God sends snakes, poisonous snakes among the people. If you're not a snake lover here, I'm, I'm sorry for this. It might be kind of triggering to, uh, poisonous snakes, no thank you. I'm not a snake fan either, just letting you know. But these snakes come, and it's possible that this snake is called, it's an adder snake. It was known to be in the sandy waste of Sinai, and they were very poisonous snakes. And these snakes come, and they bite the people, and many people die because of the poison. And we've talked about this over the last several weeks, but we see another reminder here. The people pay the consequences for their unbelief and their complaining. Man, there's consequences for our sins, for our actions, and they pay the consequence here. But then in verse 7, it says this, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Look what the Israelites do here. They actually kind of do the right thing. They acknowledge their sin against God and Moses. They know that they've messed up, and they actually acknowledge it. And really, this is the proper response to our sin, to acknowledge our sin. But I want to add one more thing to this, and this is another lesson I think we learn here, and it's we need to confess our sins and repent. We need to confess our sins, but not only do we confess our sins, but we repent of our sins. And the best way, one of the best ways that I've heard this described is confession is admitting that you've done something wrong. Repentance is turning away from the wrongdoing. And I think that's where we get stuck sometimes. We confess, but we don't truly repent. We acknowledge our sins, but we don't truly repent. And I think this, in all honesty, is something the Israelites sometimes lacked. How often did they say they were sorry for what they've done, but really it was more of like a, I'm sorry, God, for what I've done. Please make the snake stop biting us, right? Like it's just a, hey, I'm only confessing my sins so that this will stop. And it's not really repentance. And we do the same things. We think that just merely confessing our sins is what we are supposed to do, but it's not. We're supposed to confess and repent, you see, instead, our life should show our repentance. Matthew 3, 8 says, bear, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your life should look different when you confess, you repent. Your life should look changed. You should do the opposite of what you were doing. You should be able to bear fruit in your repentance. And here's the good news, is that we can go before God with our sins. We can confess, we can repent, and we can find the forgiveness of our sins for our sins. 2 Chronicles 7:14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Proverbs 28:13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And 1 John 1:9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can go before God, we can confess, we can repent, and we can find the forgiveness for our sins. And I love this quote from a guy named Francis Quarles. He said, If thou wouldest be justified, acknowledge thine injustice. He that confesses his sin begins his journey towards salvation. He that is sorry for it mends his pace 
He that forsakes it is at his journey's end. There must be true and earnest confession and true and earnest repentance. And so in our next verses, we see how God responds. In verses 8 and 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so God responds here in quite an amazing way. And notice what happens here. God doesn't take away the source. He doesn't take away the problem, but instead he gives the people an opportunity to be healed by giving the people a remedy for the poison that is in their body. And this would be a bronze snake on a pole, and people would come and look at it and would be healed. I love what Stephen Cole says here. He says, he took what was deadly and turned it into a source of life for all who would trust in his remedy. He took what was deadly and turned it into a source of life. And that's the thing. It wasn't just an issue of we're going to plant this pole here with this snake on it, this bronze snake, and, and that's going to be it. As soon as we put this pole here, everyone's going to just automatically be healed. That's not what happens. No, it was going to require something. It was going to require faith. It was going to require obedience. Because one, they had to look at the serpent, and two, they had to look at the serpent, and they had to believe that in this, God was providing the remedy for their poison. And here's the thing, the sad truth of this is that later this would have to be destroyed because it became an object of worship in the days of Hezekiah. Second Kings 18.4, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke it in the pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And we fast forward in the story, and we see that this story is so important for us today. How so? This serpent on a pole, the people look at it, believe, and are healed. How does that apply to us? John three fourteen through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you see, the truth is this, just as Israel has sinned, so too have we sinned. Just as they face consequences for their sins, so do we. And just as God gave them the remedy for the poison that was in them, God has given us the same remedy. And it's this, Christ crucified is the remedy for our sin. Christ crucified is the remedy for our sin. The death on the cross and the blood that was shed on the cross was blood that was poured out for us. And here's the thing, you can't get around this because there is no other cure for sin. We talked about it in Leviticus, forgiveness required sacrifice, and for us, Jesus is the sacrifice. There is no other option for our sin. There is nothing else we can do. We can't go into the drugstore We can't go into the drugstore tomorrow and say, hey, I need medicine for my sin. We we can't do that. There's no medicine that can cure our sin. We can't buy self-help books and say, if I read all of these books and I read all of these messages, then that's going to cure my sin problem and I'm never going to sin again because the book said, if I do these things and I'll be good, self-help books can't cure our sin. 
We can't say, as long as I do this and this and this and this, then I will be sin-free forever. There, there's, that's not how it works. Remember what the people had to do. They had to look at this bronze serpent, and they had to put faith in God, believing that by doing this, God would heal them just as he promised. The same thing is true here. There is no other way. There is only one way to receive forgiveness, and that is to put our faith and belief in Jesus Christ. It is the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 11, 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. There's no medicine. There's no books. There's nothing that you can go to that will tell you this is the cure for sin. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus. And here's the thing. There's nothing you can do to add to this. Notice here, God didn't say, all right, I want you to set up this pole with this bronze serpent, and I want you to look at it, and, I want, and, and you'll be here there. But also, you have to take a bunch of gifts, and you have to bring them in front of this, and you have to, you have to make offerings to this pole, and then you will be healed. He doesn't say that. No, there's no other condition, but you have to look at it and believe We have to believe, we have to put faith in what God has promised. And you know what? Many people want to debate this and criticize this, and they want to say that the Son of God dying on a cross is just absolutely foolish. It's stupid. Why would God send his Son to die on a cross? It doesn't make any sense. Or God would be a monster for sending his Son to die on the cross. But remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And notice this, all the Israelites could look at the bronze serpent and be healed. It wasn't just for a select few of the Israelites. It wasn't, okay, you group of Israelites, you can look, but these other group can't. No. Oh, all who looked on it and believed that God would cure them, would heal them, would be rescued. The same thing is true for us. All who put their faith, hope, trust in him, who call on him, will be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.11-13, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, it doesn't matter your sin. It doesn't matter your past. You can look upon Christ crucified. You can look at the cross. You can see the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for you. You can look upon the one who was up there to take your place, just as this bronze serpent would take the place of the serpents that were poisoning the people. Jesus on the cross is up there taking our place, paying the price, paying the penalty for our sins. And you can look upon the one who took your place and the one whose death brings life and you can put your faith, your trust, your hope in him. You know, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon called The Mystery of the Brazen Serpents. And when he closes the sermon, 
he closes with these words, and I want to share what he says. He says, and my last encouragement is this. Come to my master and try him, because he promises to save you. The promises of Jesus Christ are all of them as good as oaths. They never fail. He says, whosoever believeth him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if I had here a man who declared himself to be the vilest wretch on earth, I would say to him, young man, I am very fond of proving the truthfulness of God's promises. Now, God says, if you believe, you shall not perish. My dear friend, when a common sinner tries and it does not fail, it is some proof of its truthfulness. But you are an extraordinary sinner. Now, thou extraordinary sinner, venture thyself on this on this promise. He says, thou shalt not perish. Come and try him. And remember, God must undefy himself and cease to be true before he can ever damn a sinner who has believed in Christ. Come risk it, thou who art so laden with sin, thou staggerest under thy burden. Fall down on the simple promise. He is able to save to the uttermost. Just cast thyself wholly on Christ. And if thou art not saved, God's book is a lie, and God himself has broken his truth, but that cannot be. Come thou and try it. Whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've never looked upon Christ and the cross and you've been thinking that there is just too much in your past, too much sin, too much regret, too many mistakes. You're an extraordinary sinner. There's nothing that God could do for me. Too much sin, too much regrets. I would say this, try him. Try him. Come before him and see what he can do in your life. Come and see that he can forgive your sins. Believe on him. Put your faith and trust and obedience in him and see what he can do in your life. He can save. And he can save because of the work that was done on the cross, the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to him, whether you write it down on the connect card or you come up here and talk with me, I'd love to talk with you about this. Because there's nothing you've done that God cannot forgive. There's no mistake. There's nothing in your past that God cannot forgive. Try him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you, like me and everyone else, has forgotten God's provision. We've gotten so angry and frustrated in these moments, these trials, these waitings where we're asking God, why are you not doing what I want you to do? We forget God's provision. And maybe you're here this morning and that's you. Guess what? We can seek out God. We can confess our sins and we can repent and we can turn around and walk the right way. We can turn from our sin. And if you need to this morning, right where you're sitting, you can pray and you can give this to God or you can come up here and pray and I'd love to pray with you. But we need to remember each and every day that God is a God of provision. He's given us grace and mercy. He's given us his love. He's given us his word. He's given us an ability to speak with him. For him and we can pray but more than anything nothing greater has he given us than this his son 
who came, who lived, who died, whose blood was poured out for us on that cross, who went to the tomb and rose again three days later. We have forgiveness, we have grace, we have mercy because of that. And if you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to follow him, you can make that decision this morning. We're gonna stand and we sing together.